We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. Well, as I have said all along, I didn't think Judge Stickland's order was going to survive. You remember Judge Stickland's order a few weeks ago? I was having a conversation this morning with a friend of mine, Bill Nick. For some reason, I remember this being in August, but apparently it was just a couple weeks ago. And in fact, it was just a day or so before the passing of Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice of Judge, sorry, Stickland, in Pennsylvania, struck down Governor Wolf's orders, closing various businesses and things. The liberties protected by the Constitution are not fair-weather freedoms, he wrote, in place when times are good, but able to be cast aside in times of trouble. There is no question that this country has faced and will face emergencies of every sort, but the solution to a national crisis can never be permitted to supersede the commitment to individual liberty that stands as the foundation for the American experiment. There was a good deal of hoopla uh, at the time that this order was, was written. The state of Pennsylvania immediately asked for it to be stayed. Uh, Judge Stickland refused to do that. And in what is literally no surprise to anybody that is familiar with this stuff, the Third Circuit Court yesterday, day before yesterday, stayed the order with, with no comment. They made no comment as to why they were doing it. They just said the order is put on hold pending a full hearing by the Third Circuit Court, either by a two, three-judge panel or by in bank with the whole shoot and match. Again, this was no surprise. It shouldn't have been a surprise. And, and I know at the time, because I listened to other shows and I listened to stuff, people were very excited by Judge Stickland's orders. They sang his praises. They said he was right. They were ecstatic that he would say this and that he would show that governor in Pennsylvania that he can't do this. Of course, there were a couple of problems with it. Number one, most of the orders had already been lifted. So it's kind of a moot point. Second problem was, I'm pretty sure that nobody that was on the air doing that actually read the ruling. They didn't really delve into what Stickland's logic behind it was. Now, again, not saying I disagree with him. What I'm saying is that the arguments are more subtle than he tried to make them be. We got to go back in time, of course, to figure this out. Lock, uh, Stickland based his ruling on a case that was decided in 1905. Goes back quite a ways. Uh, 
the New York Times had it as a banner headline because it was a New York law that was involved here. The basis of this case, Lochner, was that New York tried to impose some limits as to how much people could work, how long people could work, particularly in bakeries, confectionaries. And the state of New York found itself being sued by a guy by the name of Lochner, who was a baker, who was upset because, in essence, the state of New York was messing with his business. They were telling him when he could and when he couldn't uh, work, how long he could work, how the people working for him. There was a lot of, there were other laws in New York that restricted how long people could work, work days and that sort of thing. And keep in mind, this was in the early 1900s, in an era when full incorporation of things had not yet happened. The ruling was controversial. It was, quote-unquote, my favorite phrase, sharply divided, five to four. It struck down the New York law, meaning that Lochner and others could work however they wanted to. And their argument was that under the 14th Amendment and the First Amendment, they had free association, they had freedom of contracts, they could, they could, if they wanted to work 90 hours a week, they should be allowable to work 90 hours a week. They should, people should be able to work 90 hours a week if they wanted to, if they contracted to. And the state should have nothing to say about that. The court struck down the law that prevented that by a sharply divided 5-4 ruling. It's one of the more intriguing cases. It's, it's, it's called a landmark decision, but it really isn't. There are some reasons for this. Now, what you need to understand is that this was Judge Stickland's primary basis for his ruling, was that the states can't interfere with the freedoms that are established here. The difference in Lochner, though, in 1905, in this sharply divided court, was one of dissent. Now, we often talk about dissents. In fact, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg recently, she was famous, quote-unquote, for her dissents. Famous amongst people that I doubt ever read any of them, but uh, she would be very passionate in her dissent in rulings. But the thing to keep in mind is that dissents are not the rule. In other words, if the court rules that Dave drinks coffee and that's fine, and judge, justice, whoever dissents from that, that doesn't change the ruling. It doesn't, all it does is explain why that judge disagrees with the ruling. It doesn't have the force of law. And dissents have become, especially in the Ginsburg era, dissents have become... I don't know, cause celebre in, in, in many corners. It's almost as if people read the dissents before they read the actual ruling to find out why they disagree with the ruling, that they don't know what is yet. And especially, as I said, with Ginsburg. But the dissents here are notable for a couple of reasons. Remember, this was a 5-4 sharply divided court that struck down this law that essentially as Stickland would have put it, eliminated the ability of the government, the local governments there, to intervene in contracting between individuals, association, freedom of work, that sort of thing. 
Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. made his dissent on several points. He accused the majority of the five of judicial activism, which is kind of funny if you think about it. He claimed that the case was decided upon an economic theory, which a large part of the country does not entertain. That would be that the government has no say in this. He also did not agree, he did, did, did not agree, <laughs> sorry, that the 14th Amendment enshrined the liberty of contract. He did not agree that it did, which is a, a really amazing if you think about it, because the four, under the 14th Amendment, it's remarkable what rights have been and liberties have been discovered. But he said the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social static statistic. Uh, you get the word. Uh, this was a very popular book around the time, which advocated for a, laws, a very strict laissez-faire economic theory. Justice Holmes also emphasized that, a quote, a constitution is not intended to embody a particular economic theory. Later, this, uh, this particular dissent would be described as, quote, the most important dissent in history. It would, be, it would be labeled as the most important dissent ever written, sorry, um, and therefore it's given great weight, particularly given what happened subsequently to this. Sorry, I'm trying to turn off Ben's alarm here. Uh, it happens sometimes. While I see that in its entirety, I also think that the second dissent written by Justice Harlan had more of what we're actually looking at today in it. Harlan's dissent, it is plain that this statue was enacted to protect the physical well-being of those who work in bakery and confectionery and establishments. He was absolutely certain that the law had the best interest of the people at heart. More importantly, he believed that the police power of the states should be upheld. That the states, if there was no truly unconstitutional reason for doing so, should have the power to do what they believed was right. This decision has been, since 1905, roundly critiqued, even though it's a quote-unquote landmark decision. It has been repeatedly critiqued as being <laughs> wrong. Wrong on the order of one of the most wrong Supreme Court decisions, right up there with Dred Scott and some of the others. This, this decision has just been pummeled through history. In fact, John Paul Stevens wrote in 2011, the case is famous because there is virtual, virtually universal agreement among judges and scholars that it was incorrectly decided. More important, it is the case which Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote the most influential dissenting opinion in the court's history. He's correct about that. He is correct that Holmes's dissent was, in fact, very influential. It's also a little more difficult and nuanced to follow compared to Harlan's dissent, which was the Constitution allows states to do things that are in the best interest of their the, the police power of a state should not be interfered with unless there's just some real reason to do it. Which brings us to Stickland's decision, which is based on Lochner. Lochner was never actually overturned, hence it remains a quote-unquote landmark decision. 
However, comma, just because it was not overturned doesn't mean it still applies. Why do I say that? Throughout the, the, the ensuing three decades, from 1905 to 1935, the court began to kind of reconsider its logic in Lochner as the court changed, as the society changed, as things, and then the Depression came along and the New Deal came along, and the court faced the packing issues with Roosevelt and some other things that were happening. The court began to relook at this, and they really began to look at Holmes's dissent, which the argument was no. Uh, no economic theory should be embraced. And this is important because when you're in the middle of a depression, economic theories become important to how people work. And there was a great deal of backlash, as you know, in history uh, to the laissez-faire philosophy of, uh, of Mr. Herbert Spencer and others. And there was a great need for the court to move forward with allowing some of the things that the president and the government wanted to do to correct the economic problems. And so in a set of decisions made throughout the mid-1930s, while they did not reverse Lochner specifically, which means it's still on the books, which is why Stickland is able to go and use it in his logic and ruling, they essentially rewrote that in the sense that they passed a bunch of rulings that, for all practical purposes, nullified it. They didn't overturn it, but they changed their position so that the police power of state and the court itself would not engage in a specific economic theory, and they would begin to recognize more fully the powers that the states had to enforce laws that were designed to, in fact, essentially be police power so that the states could say, well, this is in the best interest of our people. Therefore, we're going to go ahead and do it. Which brings us, of course, to today. Governor Cuomo's orders over the last couple of days, his much-threatened and much-anticipated orders, essentially shutting down parts of New York City and New York because of what he has decided are super-spreader events, including Orthodox and Hasidic Jews gathering for Sukkot celebrations. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I am not Hasidic, nor am I Orthodox, uh, but I am Jewish. I understand the significance of our festival, our, our, our holiday of Sukkot. It is a very meaningful and very deep important holiday to us. But it is also one that, in my view, doesn't necessarily require us to all be in the same place at the same time. That's my opinion. I am not a rabbi. But I am Jewish, and you know what they say. Two Jews, three opinions. For what it's worth, the Hasidim and the Orthodox believe that they do need to gather. They do need to do these things. They need to have these services. They need to be celebratory in the streets and, and the likes of that, and they always have done this. Cuomo's ruling appears to be specifically aimed at Jewish folks. That would be problematic if that was proven to be the case. 
if it was proven, if he, if he said in his order, specifically Jewish people at this place can't gather, it would be wrong. I don't think that the order actually says that. I think it's more broad than that. It, it, it covers zip codes in, in, in their entirety. Now, you could argue that those zip codes are primarily Jewish or primarily whatever, but that doesn't necessarily make it <laughs> so, that, uh, so that he can't. And remember that under New York law, under a state of emergency now, which has been declared, the governor has the right to establish a curfew, the prohibition and control of pedestrian and vehicular traffic. He has the right to regulate and close places of amusement and assembly, and the prohibition of and control of presence of people on streets. This is I'm reading to you the New York Code. This is this is what he has the right to do, the suspension with any part or all of its territorial limits or any of its local laws or ordinances or regulations. He can, he, according to the New York state law, has the authority to do this, has the ability to do this, has the uh, powers, as it were, to do these things. Which, of course, brings us back to Justice Stick, Judge Stickland and his the Constitution does not extend, you know, we, we, the Consti- we, we can't, the solution to a national crisis can never be permitted to supersede the commitment to individual liberty that stands as the foundation of the American experiment, for which, again, he was praised, but again, is based on a discredited and long, uh, while not overturned, but certainly, certainly thrown on the, the trash pile of history, ruling that has long been superseded by the dissents which Harlan and Holmes put forward. That, number one, we don't the court is not subscribing to a specific economic theory, and number two, that the police power of state, as outlined in Article 1, Section 10, where it says the state shall, as imminent danger as shall not admit delay, can declare emergencies, and essentially the state constitutions have outlined what those powers are under those conditions. Which brings us round once again. The states, well, they need to review those laws and those constitutional authorities. Said that here about Washington. The idea that the only person who can decide that this COVID emergency is over as Jay Inslee is ludicrous. The idea that in New York State, Governor Cuomo or even Bill de Blasio as mayor have authorities to extend these things like this is ludicrous, especially given the conditions that he's put onto this by redlining specific districts. See, red pen. Um, he supposedly is going to stop the super spreader events. But you know as well as I do, it's New York City. What's going to happen? Well, I used to think this is what would happen. I don't know anymore. They let these guys get away with 32-ounce drinks and the likes of that. My day, people would have pelted City Hall in New York with, with big gulp cups. But nowadays, I don't know what they're going to do. At any rate, people are just going to go to someplace else in the city that isn't in the limited area. And for the life of me, I can't believe that Cuomo doesn't know that. He knows that. He's almost anticipating that. He's almost hoping for that. Because, again, these state governors have discovered how much authority and power they have and how they can blame presidents 
and Congresses for the failures to act when, in fact, it's their actions that are causing this. They can get it. There's no accountability. There's authority with no accountability. They can do whatever they want. States, the peoples of states, state legislatures are going to really seriously need to look at this because otherwise, when does the emergencies end? What's not an emergency? We've talked about this. What if I declare, what if some governor somewhere declares firearms to be a, a state emergency? And he invokes emergency powers for that. What if they... California, what if we decide that global warming is a national is a state emergency and we have to enforce gubernatorial powers for this, which in California he can seize property. Supposedly with compensation, but that's not really all that clear. States are going to need to revisit these things, and judges need to reconsider what they're writing because basing your opinion, which again we We all like that. We all like what Stickman had to say. The problem is that he ignored literally a hundred years of rulings from the state, from the Supreme Court that (laughs) while they don't disagree with what he's saying, they re-express the sentiment of Abraham Lincoln. The Constitution is not a suicide pact. And Lincoln, while referring to the suspension of habeas corpus, and later, again, quoted by other Supreme Court justices in cases downstream, was was absolutely right. There is a fine line between liberty and necessity of government action. And while Stickland's position is one that we applaud and we like, is it really, really correct? Are there not situations where liberties might be suspended in the face of an emergency? If we say no to that, what happens? If we accept that principle, which the court did accept many, many years ago, but approaches it cautiously, approaches it with the idea that we have to be very careful about this, we can't just, you know, will it. And if this people of the states and municipalities and whatever else, reconsider their state constitutions and state laws in these matters, I think we come out ahead. If we don't, we'll continue to have governors and authoritarians who will use power to their own advantage. I don't know what Cuomo gets out of telling Jews they can't dance on Sukkot. I don't know what he gets out of it. But obviously it's enough that he thinks he should do it. And I guess maybe that's really the problem, isn't it?